the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the December 1st show. I keep saying that because I don't believe it's December. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about life, anything and everything that's on your heart. All you have to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free. Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I am going to be finishing a book. We're finishing Daniel. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, and close out our study in the book of Daniel. It has been fascinating, frightening at times uh, when you combine Daniel and Revelation, which I'm now also doing on Friday nights. Um, Boy, it's really heavy. Glad I'm going to be raptured and... uh, Tonight, as we close Daniel, we get a big little bit more detail about the Great Tribulation and the last of the very last days. So let's go to the questions that have been sent while we wait your phone calls today. Richard asks this, why do we worship on Sunday when the Ten Commandments say that we are supposed to worship on Saturday? Uh, I had no answer when that question was asked by a friend. Richard, whenever you're uh, questioned on this, um, one of the things you've got to do is rely on hermeneutics. Who was God telling to worship on the original Jewish Sabbath? He never told you, Richard. He never told me. He never told Christians to. He was speaking to Jews, to Israel, his chosen people, a people under the law. And, of course, Sabbath worship was a, an important part of the law. In fact, the fact that Jesus was accused of violating the Sabbath, and that's what gave them sort of the impetus to 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 falsely accuse him and plot his murder, uh, ought to give us a, an indication about their motives. Um, but, you see, Jesus never told us to worship on Saturday. New Testament tells us that we can worship any day we want, all days are alike. And in fact, it goes one step further and indicates that we ought to be worshiping God every day. Every day is an equal opportunity to worship the Lord who died for us. So we worship on Sunday. The real reason is corporate worship occurs on Sunday is because it celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And the result was the early church uh, changed from the typical Jewish celebration on Saturday, the corporate gathering on Saturdays. They changed it to Sunday to honor 
the day of resurrection, which is clearly the key day, uh, the holy day uh, of the week for us ever since Jesus was here and rose from the dead. So, Richard, that's the way to stop. Just, um, you know, read your Bible. Open it. Open to the law. Why? Who keeps the Sabbath? Who is he speaking to? And the Holy Spirit, by the way, goes out of his way to indicate he said to them, speaking to the Israelites, he said to the Israelites, the law was given to Israel, and we're not under law. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 speaks about Jesus being the fulfillment of, of what the Sabbath represented. The Sabbath is a day of rest. That's what it means, by the way. It's not, uh, it, it's just, it's a day of rest. It's a day to honor, to worship the Lord. But Jesus fulfilled that law for us. You will never see that law repeated in the New Testament, or you will see all of the other of the Ten Commandments repeated in the New Testament. You'll never see that one because the idea is Jesus fulfilled what the Sabbath was a picture of. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he said. So Jesus was the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So Richard, I think that's the best way to approach somebody. When um, somebody asks, open your Bible, go to there. Is he talking to you? Who is he talking to? They can answer their own questions. Good question, Richard. Thank you and appreciate you sharing your faith uh, with people. Here is a question from Oliver. He says, Pastor Ron, do you think speaking in tongues is real? And does it have any value if we don't know what we're saying? Uh, Oliver, yes, speaking in tongues is real. Now, obviously, as, as in other gifts of the Spirit, it's counterfeited a lot. I think it's important for us to recognize we who are charismatic, that is that we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today, the gift of tongues, not Acts chapter 2 gift of tongues. That's a one time only, never to be repeated event. It's the day the church was born, uh, the day of Pentecost. Um, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. There was the, the appearance of cloven tongues of fire and people spoke in languages that were known and understood by those hearing. And they heard them praising God in their own dialects. So that's a one-time only thing. The gift of tongues that Paul speaks a lot about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he speaks about the gift itself. And then in chapter 14, he talks about the use of that gift in the church. Um, uh, it's a, com- a completely different thing. When, when you are using your prayer language, praying in tongues, Paul says it we're speaking not to men, but to God. It always helped me, Oliver, to remember that it's a vertical language. It's not meant for for the, the consumption of the general population. Um, uh, we're speaking to God. And if we're speaking to God and we're exercising gift of the Spirit, and if, as always, our hearts are right with God, of course it has great value. I would say not just even if we don't know what we're saying, but especially if we don't know what we're saying. Oliver, if you've ever been in a situation where you had so much on your heart that you didn't know how to articulate it, and there were times when uh, all you could imagine was, was saying to God, thank you, thank you, or, or maybe your heart was so heavy with the burden and you couldn't communicate adequately that burden. That's what the gift of tongues is all about. And I'm speaking to God by faith. He knows what's in my heart. The Holy Spirit lives in our heart. So yes, it's real, it's a wonderful gift, and it's a gift that I personally believe God would give to everyone if they could receive it by faith. Now, it's clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that not everyone, this is 1 Corinthians 14 actually, uh, not everyone is going to speak in tongues. But I believe that they would. Paul said, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. I just think there's a lot of people that won't receive the gift by faith. Tongues in my personal prayer life has been a source of encouragement. And it's not that I get goosebumps or, or, or get super feelings or anything when I speak in tongues. It's not like I can't help myself. It just happens. Self-control is evident in the use of all of the gifts of the Spirit. 
It's just there's times when you really need to pour your heart out to God and you don't know what to say. Oliver, I have, um, I, I do not have the gift of interpretation. So um, once in a while, God will give me sort of a general idea about what I'm praying for. But I don't understand the words. Uh, I've prayed for the gift of interpretation and haven't received it. But there have been times, a lot of them, when I knew that I was engaging in spiritual warfare in my prayer language. You know, I don't want to just say dumb, cliche stuff, I bind you, devil, that kind of nonsense. I want my prayer, if I'm engaging in spiritual warfare, to be effective. I want to know that it's coming from the throne of God. And so the prayer language is is great for that. There are other times, and these are the times when I uh, especially appreciate the gift of tongues. Uh, It's in those times when uh, God's let me know that I was interceding on other people's behalf. Often when I'm praying for somebody, uh, as an example, somebody in the church who's going through something really difficult. You know, I can say, oh, Lord, touch and heal. Oh, Lord, deliver them from this. I can say that. But there's times when the Spirit will just take me right into my prayer language and I know I'm engaging in the battle on their behalf. I'm interceding for them. And I think that's really important. So speaking in tongues is real. Now, Oliver, when you see it in a church, it's out of control. I don't know what your context is here. Perhaps you were in one of those churches or visited one and everybody's speaking in tongues at the same time. Then it's not real. That's counterfeit. That is contrary to the way that tongues are supposed to be represented in the church according to the Word of God. And since the Holy Spirit would never contradict himself, when you see the gift of tongues being abused, it's not real and it has no value. In fact, it's harmful uh, when you see it exercised improperly. But when you're using the real gift of tongues and... You're interceding on somebody's behalf. You don't have to know who they are. God has given you the opportunity to be used to change somebody else's life. So I think it's really important. It's a wonderful gift of tongues. Uh, One other thought here, Oliver. There have been times when out in my prayer walks my time with the Lord, I'll feel like God just wants to say yes. I've actually believed, I've heard the Lord speak to my heart, not audible voice or anything, so it's not weird, but but I believe that the Lord has, I've been outside, I'm about to start my prayer time, and and I think sometimes the Lord has interrupted me and said, ask me. And the idea is that he really wants to say yes. That's another time that I get to use my prayer language, and it has great value because I know that I'm praying for something right in the middle of God's perfect will. So, Oliver, that's the the best I can do. Hope that helps you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five, or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Anonymous says, "Do you think Christians should always submit to government authority?" Uh, the answer is yes. Anonymous, we should always submit to government authority, except when what the government is asking us to do violates the authority of the Word of God or violates the intent or the morality of the Word of God or the direct expression of the Word of God. Um, Yeah, we should submit to government authorities. Government authority has been established by God, not the individual people in the places, but just the idea of authority. It's for our good. And Paul says that we're supposed to live at peace with government authority. But when the government says you can't do this and God says to do it, I'll give you an example. Uh, It wasn't too long ago, um, March of 2020, when we were told that we could no longer meet together as a church. Now, I think every church did the right thing at first. Nobody knew at that time what COVID was going to be like. Nobody knew what lay on the horizon. We certainly didn't know about all of the inconsistencies and sort of double speak about COVID and the restrictions it applied. But when it became clear, when it became clear that, that this was not nearly the plague that they thought it was, when it became 
even more clear that 99.8% of the people who contracted COVID were going to recover from it. We who are Christians could no longer submit to the government's mandate that we don't meet in church. Eventually, they said you can meet outside. Um, what did Peter say to the religious authorities? You decide, should we obey you or should we obey God? And the same thing is true. So when possible, and when it doesn't violate the word of God, yes, anonymous, we should submit to government authorities. But once again, when the government says that we have to do something that contradicts what the word of God says, then we have to say no. It's our responsibility to say no. So I think that's important. God says we should not forsake the assembly together of the saints, so we are not going to do it. I think here, uh, Anonymous, we were closed for, I think, nine weeks. Um, we had an outbreak of COVID uh, pretty early. I think it was in June. And we closed for nine weeks during that time when, when they were asking us to do it. After nine weeks, it just became clear that, you know, we've got to start meeting together. There's people who are hurting, people that need to be in church. We need to be about the Lord's business. And that's when we made the decision here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio that we were going to meet together. And uh, we made a decision at that time that, that we were never going to close our doors again. Sunday is we're going to meet. And so that's what we did. So I hope that answers your question. Veronica said, how could God, <laughs> I'm sorry, Veronica, I'm laughing. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. Veronica says, how could God want Joe Biden to be president? I know God is in control, but why did he choose Biden? Um, Veronica and everybody else out there. Now, these questions, some of them come in and we don't get to them uh, because of phone call or, or, or other forms of questions that come in. We don't get to them for a while. I'd forgotten this question was in there. So, um, um, you're right that God is in control, but he didn't choose Biden. When, I, when we read in Romans 13 that every authority has been established by God, we somehow illogically make the connection that, that whoever wins is on God's side. I had a son who, before my Jesus days, uh, I used to take him to the racetrack with me. I, I'd go to the racetrack whenever I could. And uh, my son, Terry, he would always root for the horse in front. Dad, Dad, I want number two. Dad, Dad, bet on number two, because number two was in the front. Well, when number two got tired and the others passed him, he said, okay, Dad, now I want number four. Now I want number four. And that's how it was. Well, God's not like that. God doesn't say, you know, I'm going to choose Joe Biden because I know Joe Biden is going to win. Uh, God simply put in place the authority structure that we are to submit to. So, Veronica, I can promise you it didn't make a bit of difference to God whether Joe Biden was the president or Donald Trump was the president. He chose Biden. But he didn't really do it. We did it. I think this is a question that you ought to be asking your friends who voted for Joe Biden. It's that simple. So remember, God doesn't choose a candidate. He didn't vote for Joe Biden. He knew Joe Biden was going to win. But remember, sometimes the Bible's pretty clear, especially as you read through the history of the Kings and the Chronicles in the Old Testament, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it makes it very clear that God gives the people sometimes the government they deserve. And Veronica, I can say to you without hesitation, this is the government this country deserves. Now, I love this country. I'm a patriot. However, we've turned our back on God. We've kicked him out of school. We've kicked him out of public prayer. We've kicked him out of every area of our society because we don't want to offend those who don't believe. We thank God for blessing us as a nation and make no mistake, God has blessed the United States of America abundantly in our relatively speaking short history. And we thank him by being the largest producers of pornography 
in the world by far, and I'm just talking about California. In fact, locally, the valley, the San Fernando Valley in California. God blesses us. And we thank him by proclaiming gay marriage to be legal. Slapping him figuratively in the face. I don't know why any Christian would ever think for a moment that we don't deserve the government that we have. Now let me say one other thing, Veronica. This is a time I think as Christians that we need to understand the time that we live in. We live at this moment at a time where people are more ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ than at any time. I've been saved for 30 years. More than at any time in the 30 years I've been walking with Jesus. People are angry. They're afraid. They're wearing masks, for goodness sake. Because they're afraid. Their hearts are open. And sadly, Christians, we don't thank him enough because we don't like to share our faith. We don't want to offend anybody. I'd say it's pretty simple, Veronica. We have the government that we deserve. I think what Christians need to be praying for is a move of God's spirit, not a move in the mid-year elections in 2022 or the next presidential election in 2024. We need to be praying for a move of God's Spirit in the hearts of Christians. If we who are believers would act like believers, I think lots and lots of people would be getting saved. And you know, one of the things that we need to understand is that when people meet Jesus, everything changes, and that will also change their political beliefs. Veronica, we who are believers, many of us, we have said hateful things to other professing Christians because they disagreed with us politically. I shared this on the program last week, but I heard a, a pastor, in fact, Raul Reese. Um, no, it wasn't Raul Reese. I'm sorry. It was Joe Foch out of Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia. Um, he said the thing that breaks his heart the most is that he has more people in his church. Now, this is a Calvary Chapel. Joe's a great Bible teacher. He says, my heart is broken because I have more people in my church excited about the return of Trump than about the return of Christ. So, Veronica, I think we have the government that we deserve and we need to pray for a revival and that revival needs to begin with each and every one of us. Thank you, Veronica. We are inside, I think, about uh, four minutes for this half of the program. Phone's quiet yesterday and today. We've been getting lots of phone calls until yesterday and today. We'd love your calls at 340-9585. Kenneth says, is God okay with women conducting marriage ceremonies? Uh, I think the answer to that, Kenneth, is yes. I mean, uh, God has nothing to do with secular wedding ceremonies. So... Why would we even be concerned? Godless people marrying one another. What does it matter who or what gender the efficient is? So, yeah, I think, you know, it is what it is. And I think what God is, is it just God's heart breaks. Uh, we, again, this is where the church needs to take responsibility. We have corrupted marriage. Uh, inside the church, the, the rate of divorce inside the church. And I'm talking about Christians who, people, Christians, when they marry and when they get divorced, instead of keeping their promise to God, we simply forget, no, I want to be happy. So uh, God understands and we, without biblical warrant, we divorce. I can tell you, Kenneth, that God is not okay with that. Um. I will say in a godly wedding, in a Christian wedding, the efficient ought to be a man, it ought to be a pastor, and it ought to be a marriage that honors God. Having said that, Kenneth, um, I mean, the, the question is pretty straightforward. Having said that, uh, I, I am, this coming weekend, uh, uh, a young couple in our church that I've been doing premarriage counseling with, they're getting married, 
and uh, we are just so excited for them and, and what a joy they've been uh, in the pre-marriage counseling. Uh, and then later this month, now that it's December, uh, one of my youth pastors, um, uh, is, is he's been here since he was six years old. He's marrying um, a girl who actually attended here at Calvary Chapel um, while she was still in her mother's womb. That's how long she's been here, literally her entire life. And they are getting married and um, officiating at that ceremony is going to be one of the highlights of my life. Uh, watch these kids. They 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 planned on getting married from fourth grade. And um, we're going to celebrate with them uh, later this month. So, Kenneth, thank you very, very much. Hey, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be closing the book of Daniel. Uh, it has been... Um, for me, personally, I'm a history nerd, so uh, for me, I love it. It's been been uh, exhilarating and thrilling. Uh, wonderful, wonderful book tonight. We have the privilege of closing it, having read every word together as a church family. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. Uh, we love your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left in the show. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Chip. And I think uh, I've answered this question before, Chip, and... um, you obviously didn't hear the answer. Uh, it's from our mobile app, and Chip says, How do preterists believe that all prophecy has been fulfilled? Thank you for all that you and your staff does for the radio listening audience. God bless you all. Chip, thank you for the blessings. I always appreciate that. Chip, there's no explanation for why preterists believe that all prophecy has been fulfilled. I think by and large, I think it's rooted in their failure to accept the supernatural. Um, the, the Word of God is a supernatural book, and I think, I think, uh, as conservative as most preterists are, um, they're 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 like the Sadducees. They didn't they don't believe in the miraculous, and so they have to find a natural explanation for everything. And they believe that all Old Testament prophecy had been fulfilled um, in seventy A.D. with the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem. Um, it is dishonest scholarship, Chip, uh, because there's no way that they can look at the suffering servant passages uh, and then the promises um, that will result from those passages, the, the promise in the millennium, Isaiah chapter 60 through the end of the book. We don't see lions laying with lambs. We don't see children playing at the hole of an asp. Uh, we don't see um, a, a millennial kingdom where there's only good and no bad, uh, a world that's ruled in perfect justice. Um, certainly they don't believe that Revelation 19 has occurred. They can't believe it. It's just dishonest. So what they do is they will um, turn the book of Revelation into a metaphor. Um, so there's no explanation. Um, the, the, the scholarship is horrible. Uh, it's intentional. Uh, in its ignorance, and it's just well, I'm this is what I believe. They're like flat earthers, in the sense that, you know, um, we we live on a sphere and we've got cameras in space, and we can see that that the Earth is round, and we got people saying, no, 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 we, we it's flat Earth. Well, preterism as it relates to prophecy is. Yeah, preterism as it relates to prophecy is everything. Thank you, Chip. Sorry, I don't have a better answer. I'm having some voice issues. I think you can tell. Pray for me. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Daniel from our email inbox. Daniel, thanks for writing. 
Um, he says, there is a minister at work who brought to my attention that I shouldn't sit with unbelievers at work, that I should sit alone. Um, only if they sit with me, that then is okay. Hmm. Then at that point, I'm obligated to just share the gospel with them. I don't feel like this is acting in love. I feel like this act actually pushes me away from them. I know God loves me and accepts me. I, in turn, feel love and acceptance for others, too, whom God loves and wants them to come to him. What's the proper attitude we should have? Daniel, the, the proper attitude is pretty much the attitude that you have here. Um, unbelievers are the very people you ought to be sitting with at work. Uh, when you're at lunch and you're you're sitting with them, you've got some time, uh, what a better time? To, to show them the light of Jesus Christ. Let your light so shine before men that it, they glorify your Father in heaven. They see your good works. So um, I, I would just tell this minister, he's probably um, um, a, a legalist, a Pentecostal or something. You know, we, we can't mix with him. We need, according to the Apostle Paul, to be active in sharing our faith. And the only way you can do that is with unbelievers. So I, I completely reject the premise. Um, and, and I'm glad I don't go to this guy's church. But uh, I reject the premise that we should separate. Jesus did not separate from unbelievers uh, and sinners. In fact, he sat down with them and it caused him no end of difficulties. If he knew what kind of woman this was, the, the Pharisees would whisper, mutter under their breath, um, um, he would know this man as a tax collector. Um, Jesus sat with, walked with, spoke to a whole bunch of unbelievers. Now, here's what we shouldn't do, Daniel. We shouldn't join with them in their sin, and I'm sure you know that. You know, the fact that I know people say, you know, they go drinking with their unbelieving friends. Well, Jesus hung out with sinners. Yeah, but he didn't sin with them. So we we shouldn't do what sinners do. If you're at work at lunch, for example, and you're sitting with some unbelievers and they're telling dirty stories and they're they're using foul language, I think there's a time when you say, hey, guys, please give me a break. If, you, if you're going to tell dirty stories, if you're going to use bad language, give me a chance to move to another table because I'm sitting here with Jesus and, 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 and I'm uncomfortable with your, with your behavior. That's perfectly fine. That's, that's one way we can witness. But we also want to witness to people by being able to tell them how good God is and how much he loves them. And you can't do that if you're not having any interaction with them. So um, you're right. He's not acting in love, and you are. Um, the one thing I don't want you to do is let unbelievers know that they can be accepted. We don't want to accept their sin. Our job is to tell them about Jesus. Our job is to live life that can be a witness for Jesus. I want people to look at you, Daniel, and I'm sure they do. And they say, you know, I need what that guy has. That's the most effective way of loving people that you can. And then when you do that, you're going to have lots of opportunities to tell people about your Jesus. So, Daniel, he's wrong. You're not. Enjoy. Here is a question from Phyllis. And she says, with abortion rights being revisited by the Supreme Court, what do you think will be the result should Roe be overturned? Should we even be worried about that or just be concerned that babies stop being murdered? Uh, Phyllis, this has been in the news feeds all day long. Uh, it, it, it will constantly, the Supreme Court heard the Mississippi abortion rights case uh, today. Uh, and the conservative justices uh, on the Supreme Court uh, seem to be unified uh, in their position uh, against uh, Roe or against abortion uh, in the first place. Um, so so you asked first, what do you think the result will be should Roe be overturned? I think there will be violence in the street. I find it fascinating, Phyllis, that... These people, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. I find it fascinating that these people are protesting for the right to murder infants. 
And they're going to have to explain that to Jesus one day. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses, they're going to have to explain to Jesus why their energy was spent on anything that would be the destruction of babies. They're going to have to explain why they call killing babies women's health. It's not women's health. It's the murder of unborn children. Why do they call abortion health care? It's not certainly not health care for the baby that's being murdered. And they're going to have to explain these things to God. And all because they want to sin. I mean, let's face it, fellas. Being pregnant is 100% preventable. If you don't have sex with somebody you're not married to, then you have no possibility of getting pregnant. It's that simple. But see, what we want to do is we want to sin and we don't want to have any responsibility. We don't want there to be any consequences. And the result has been that nearly 65 million babies have been murdered since Roe in 1973. And I think this is such a demonic topic that there will be blood on the streets if Roe is overturned. I don't think that will happen, by the way, if this Mississippi case prevails. But I think if Roe is overturned, there will be blood on the streets. Imagine how proud people will be. I fought to win the right to murder babies. Our Constitution says that we have the right to pursue life, Liberty and happiness. Those babies, not one of the 65 million who've been murdered, have had the right to pursue life. I want you to consider that. How many of those babies would have been preachers or evangelists? How many of those babies might have been true statesmen who grew up to be president of the United States? How many of those brilliant babies would have grown up possibly with a cure for cancer. How many would have stood up for the truth about Jesus Christ? And yet we're so proud of murdering babies that we don't even think in those terms as a nation any longer. Second part of your question is, should we be worried about that or just be concerned that babies stop being murdered? You know, I don't care what the ideology is. Anything at all that stops this flow of sin That should be our focus. This is a spiritual war. It's a matter of prayer. In the past, Christians, professing Christians, have blown up abortion clinics. It's nearly as bad as killing innocent babies. But we ought to be voting pro-life. We ought to be advocating the right for unborn children to live. I just can't ever imagine a single case where it would be okay to murder an innocent child. And we've forgotten all about that. So, Phyllis, I'm concerned that babies stop being murdered. Um, I don't have any uh, expectations that that's going to happen. I just think this shows what a demonic grip uh, the enemy really has on this nation. Um, Again, I'm a patriot. I'm proud to be a United States of America citizen. However, when we're proud of murdering babies, let me say one other thing. I'm I'm sorry, I'm not trying to get on a soapbox here, but this is such an emotional subject for me. I've got women in my church, married women who can't conceive. They would love babies, and we're murdering them. How is that anything but pure evil? And what's happened is anything that the government says is okay in this country, well, then it explodes exponentially. Isn't it interesting? You can't turn on a TV show now without seeing a gay character. That only happened since the Supreme Court said that homosexuals could marry. That happened with the approval of rampant, sinful gay pride parades. 
And now you've got kids saying, I've always known I was gay. Why? Because we've told them it's okay. It's a good thing. They can get attention. Same thing is happening with uh, the, the transgender sir, transgender circumstances we have. Kids who never ever would have thought of this now are presented. Here's a healthy alternative. You can do this and you'll be happy. And it never works. Well, in 1973, Roe v. Wade said that if you don't want to be pregnant, you can kill your child. And 65 million babies have been murdered in the meantime. I think that's pretty serious, fellas. Thank you for the question. 340-9585. See, when you don't call, I talk too much. 340-9585. Randy says, God forgets our sins. Why do we remember them all the time? Is it Satan? Uh, In part, Randy, it's Satan. Satan's always going to be bringing back those ugly thoughts. Remember, his job is to condemn us, to make us feel like God can't use us, God doesn't love us, and, and he will always bring back the things that we've done in the past. That's one of Satan's schemes that Peter talks about. We're not unaware of his schemes. Um, I think the reason we remember them all the time, even though Satan's certainly involved, is that we really don't believe what the Word of God says. I'll give you an example. Just one example is all I need to do. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So even when the devil is the, res- is, is the source for bringing back those old thoughts, the old memories, why don't we claim by faith the promise of that verse? If there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and if I am in Christ Jesus, then I shouldn't be feeling condemned. That means when I do feel condemned or when those lies, Satan pushes those buttons all over again. That means I know instantly the source of that condemnation and I can take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. And Randy, that takes faith. Faith follows Jesus in spite of what you feel, in spite of circumstances. Faith revels in the promises of God and all we have to do is be those people who when the thoughts come, when the memories come flooding back, just say, oops, I know the source of that. That's the devil. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, you deal with those. And then Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that we can think about better things, pure things, noble things, godly things. All we have to do is remember by faith the promises of God. Randy, um, th- this this same principle works for all of the issues that we Christians struggle with. Faith is always the issue. When we're tempted, do you have enough faith to believe what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says? No temptation to seize you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And he'll always provide a way out so that you can stand as in victory under the temptation. Do you have enough faith to believe that? When the Bible says God loves you and he's proven it by dying for you and then that word is validated by his resurrection from the dead, why do we ever have those thoughts, God doesn't love me, God's not caring for me? Why do we blame God when bad things happen? It's because there's a lack of faith. Jesus said when, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? And the answer is most often the answer is no. So when those memories come flooding back, it's the enemy is the source and all you have to do is fight by faith, Randy, and you will overcome those sins, those temptations. Three four zero ninety five eighty five Leon I think that's the right word. I have a hard time seeing. My church says we should give because God will give more to us. Is that a right motive for giving? Also, is it true? Um, Leon, uh, it's sort of true, but whether or not it's true depends on your motive. Now, let me explain. You are in, apparently, uh, evidently, a standard prosperity church. You give to God and he has to give to you. Let me make it clear. God doesn't have to do anything. 
we should give to God because he gave everything for us. But if our motive is to give so we can get more from God, and we're talking about money, then what are we really sacrificing at all? So it's not true if your motive is to give to get. But if your motive is to give to God because you owe him everything, because you love him, you're just so grateful for all that he's done. If your motive then is to give to God because you owe him everything, then make no mistake, then the principle of reaping and sowing comes into play. We can't outgive God and God will bless us. But we can't fool God. He knows our hearts. He knows the motives. And I tell Calvary Chapel here all the time, motive is everything. You can do the right thing if your motive is wrong. No reward. You can give like a bazillion dollars. I'm still waiting for the person to give a bazillion dollars here. But if you have the wrong motive for doing it, if you're giving out of guilt, if you're giving because you're you're you're, you're manipulated into giving, if you're giving because you want God to give you more, there's no reward for that. So, Leon, it appears you're not in a healthy, balanced church. Um, it's time to find a church that teaches the Bible. And when you fall in love with Jesus, I promise you, you'll want to give. But it will not be compelled. Paul writes to the churches in Corinth that God loves a cheerful giver, and literally that's a hilarious giver. And, and everybody who is known by Jesus Christ as a son or a daughter of God, we ought to be the most generous people in the world. Primarily our giving should go to the local church, but generosity extends everywhere. And believe me, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25 says, a generous man, I would add a woman, himself or herself will be blessed by God. So it's cause and effect. It's not, okay, I'm going to do it. So I get something. I'm going to do it because I owe him everything. And then God just blesses you. You know, Leon, I've said this before in the program, but when I went to Bible college, um, by that time I'd lost all of the money that I'd made. Um, uh, Paul and I were, were, had been homeless. I mean, everything fell apart for us. My sin. Um, and I went to Bible college. We we I worked and saved up enough money to to go to Bible college, pay the f- first semester. Uh, as the first semester closed, I didn't have the money for a second semester. And I wanted to do everything right, so I went to the the, the head pastor of the Bible college, and I said to him, his name was Larry Taylor. I said, Larry, I'm going to have to leave because I don't have any money. He said, What do you mean you're going to have to leave? We don't want you to leave. And I said, but I can't pay. He goes, oh, I'll take care of it. And and by that, he didn't tell me he was going to pay for it. He just said, he said, let me look into it kind of thing. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks. And so I found him again said, Larry, I feel like I'm in sin because I'm going here and I can't pay. And he goes, oh, I already took care of that. And he told me a story. He says, there's a billionaire. And, and that was 1994. There was a billionaire uh, in Southern California, billionaire was a lot of money back then. And he said, um, he told me that, that, Larry said, he told me that uh, if you ever had a really promising student, somebody that, that was worth investing in, uh, I'll take care of it. And so he just handled it with, with phone call. And I was so blessed. And uh, I said, can I thank him? He goes, no, he doesn't need you to thank him. And I said, well, I really want to tell him how grateful to him I am. And he said, look, this guy is so rich. And he's so generous, he keeps shoveling money out the front door. And he says his problem is he's embarrassed because God keeps shoveling money in the back door and God has a bigger shovel. That's the principle of sowing and reaping. So, Leon, I hope that makes sense to you. Got time for one more question. Mandy says, I'm a new believer. Uh, How do I come to grips with knowing that my family, some of whom have died, will be in hell? Uh, Mandy, congratulations on being a new believer. Welcome to the family of God. This is a really hard thing. I've had a lot of people who, that was the very first question, when they realized that they were sinners on their way to hell, 
and the only way to go to heaven was Jesus Christ, um, they, they realized that my mother wasn't a believer or my husband wasn't a believer or even worse sometimes my children who died in an accident he, he wasn't a believer she wasn't a believer and those are really hard things so here's the only way you can do this um, thank God that you are now as a believer doing exactly what your departed loved ones would tell you to do if they had the opportunity Luke chapter 16 tells us a story about a rich man who went to the place of torment and he wanted uh, a messenger to be sent to his family. Tell him that it's real. Tell him I'm in torment. In other words, tell him to believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, no, it's too late. But it's what they would want you to do. God was just. God was fair. He loved them. He gave them every opportunity to accept him as his Lord and Savior, as their, as their Lord and Savior. And they made the choice, and God simply honored that choice. The choice they made in life, he honored that choice for eternity. But make no mistake, they would want you to escape the torment they're in. And we just have to rest in the fairness of God, the justice of God, the goodness of God, and the knowledge that God's heart is broken even more than yours. So that's all you do. Now, relative to the family who's still alive, Mandy, tell them about Jesus. Share your heart with them, just like you're sharing it in this question. Tell them about Jesus so they have another opportunity to see the light. Mandy, thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in. Really, really bad day on the phones, but we'll get over it. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date, day edition of the program. This has been The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.